Hello and welcome to the Research Connection Podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting-edge research and connects it with users in the community. podcast episode because right now in my house there's four adults and three kids and I think we're all on some kind of device. So I was thinking well this is a good time to have this conversation but to get started maybe let's all just introduce ourselves. Hi everyone I'm Jackie Kirk and I am currently the chair of leadership and educational administration in the faculty of education at Brandon University and I'm a co-host of the podcast and I am always interested in what's going on with technology and social media and how we're using technology for teaching. And so this is a great, interesting topic. Hello, I'm Mike Nauta and I'm a professor of educational technology at Brandon University in the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy. Of course, what's going on here and, and the efforts to make teaching and learning work is always of interest. So that's why I'm here. Uh, my name is Kirsten Thompson, and I'm the coordinator of ICT with Mountain View School Division. And so my role in the division is both from the programming support side for our administrators and our staff, but as well as the infrastructure and purchasing side of all of the technology for the division. Yeah, um, my name is Alec Kuros. I'm a professor of educational technology and media at the Faculty of Education, University of Regina. So my role, uh, roles vary, I guess, uh, certainly teaching the graduate and undergraduate courses uh, related to ed tech. We have uh, an ed tech certificate that I, that I manage, and I'm also the uh, director of our faculty-based research center. You know, partakes in members, research with our partners uh, within the province and research beyond that, and then some of the educational development work that we uh, do locally and nationally and internationally. Um, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, thanks for having me today. So to, to kick things off, let's just talk very sort of broad strokes. I've been reading a lot about the tech gap that's existing in rural areas compared to urban areas. And so could you just define for us, what does that mean? Paint us a broad picture of what that is. Uh, yeah, so when we've been looking at a tech gap, um, we've basically been looking at it as actually three different areas. There's, of course, just the access. And so this has been very applicable not only to our students, but it's been very applicable to our staff members as well. Um, we are a rural center. So even though we have access to devices from the division, that doesn't mean that we have the internet infrastructure to support it. So we've been trying to address the access both for our staff as well as our students. But then the second part of that is the professional development gap for our teachers in trying to determine what they understand about how to use technology for instructional practices. And then also the third part of that is just the gap in understanding between what our educators, staff, and our students know how to use technology for and what they actually know. And I think we've um, had a lot of new revelations in regards to what our students are using technology for and where they still need some support. 
so that's kind of where we've been looking at with the tech gap, those three different areas, professional development, access, and then the gap in understanding. You know, some, some of my colleagues, certainly, they just want to know how to do it. Like, how, how do we do this? And, you know, there is no one way and we don't want to prescribe a particular way of doing this and reaching out and connecting. So we focus on things like presence, things like connectivity, engagement, and some of the logistics. Like, uh, you know, I would say the privacy and safety issues are certainly an issue um, dealing with or preparing for uh, accessibility needs in an online space is, is different than what, what we might do in a face-to-face space. So, so there's all these things that just don't easily translate to an online pedagogy. And, and at the heart of it, we're, you know, the, the vast majority of university teaching still is in a face-to-face mode. So we're trying to move over to, you know, you know decades of uh, literature in online learning, taking some of the, the basics and then applying that to our faculty through professional learning opportunities uh, or just one-to-one sessions. I think everyone has really stepped up in so many ways to support peers who may have been really resistant to taking up any sort of technology or even anything that's sort of an innovative pedagogy because things work, it's easier to do in classrooms. Whereas online does take more effort, does take more preparation, uh, and everything that you do well in, an, in a face-to-face classroom is harder to do in an online class, I would, I would suggest anyway. Now, I'd agree with what both Kirsten and Alec have just said, so I'm not going to repeat a lot of that. But, um, you know, we just see it's made so many changes and challenges. And here at BU, we have people that are putting on professional learning just-in-time sessions for people to, uh, you know, learn how to use Teams or Zoom or whatever um, to me, the thing that this pandemic has really pointed out, and I think um, it's pretty clear, is that there's such a varied range of access to having good internet. And um, if anything good comes out of this, I think we've seen an increasing commitment to make sure those connections are put out into rural and northern areas. So we've seen that commitment made by the Manitoba government saying that they're going to do that. Time will tell if that happens, but to me, that's one thing that might be a positive out of all this. Kirsten, you mentioned that too, sort of that gap between resources and infrastructure that, oh, I got an iPad from my school, but if you go home and you don't have internet that's reliable, then what are you going to do with it to learn online, right? So that's interesting that that's coming up sort of as a, as a theme. And that segues really nicely into another question that I had, which was, what supports are people using now that are working and where what is still needed where do we need to go well i know in our areas it's still increasingly difficult to get reliable infrastructure off of kind of the number five highway and all seven of our mountain view school division communities we were able to extend our wi-fi to the exterior of the building as a way to try and reach some of our families But again, we do realize that that does come with the privilege of having an adult to drive you into the community as well, right? So we are trying, but yeah, until we can get reliable infrastructure into the rural areas, um, it is increasingly difficult. But that has been one area that I know a lot of our community organizations have appreciated 
and you can drive past most of our buildings now and we do see that it's being utilized. So we're happy to see that it is reaching some of our stakeholders. As we're thinking about fall, are these kinds of resources things that are going to become permanent? Like kids sitting in the parking lot doing their schoolwork, is that something that you're looking at for the fall also? It would definitely not be ideal. Um, <laughs> I, I think we can all agree with that. <laughs> if we're not able to have our students with us face to face and we're still looking at either an online model or some kind of hybrid model, that is what our current options are right now is to still continue those exterior Wi-Fi hotspots for our students. But Again, it would be my hope, like you had mentioned, that the promises that have been made to increase the infrastructure to the rural centers um, are followed through by either the provincial government or the other organizations that are working towards that. I should mention, I've, I've been impressed by a number of the, the Manitoba school divisions. And remember, I'm from Saskatchewan, so I'm an outsider. Um, and some of the government policy uh, witnessed, I think it's been quite supportive, at least on paper. Um, and so I don't know how it's actually implemented, but uh, I put out a call a while back um, just to get a sense of how schools are compensating for the lack of connectivity for rural, urban, indigenous students, uh, you know, depending on where they live, where, where connectivity has not been great. And I was quite impressed by the rollout of devices and uh, Wi-Fi hotspots uh, to, to many uh, students during this time. And so, you know, thinking about down the road, you know, I, I don't think, you know, students in parking lots is a viable long-term solution, but I think this is certainly gonna make us reconsider why, you know, students uh, in parts of our provinces are underserved with, with uh, you know, internet. And, and you probably heard, a while back, they spoke about the, you know, the internet being a basic human right uh, declared by the United Nations. And um, you know, we, we often think about that in what is often called or termed uh, developing countries, but we don't look at our inequities uh, within our provinces. So I think if COVID-19 does something, it's, you know, it perhaps gets to the point where we begin to think about leveling the, uh, the playing field related to technology, access, uh, devices, uh, internet, um, and just the ability to, to connect from anywhere. Because I don't think ultimately we're going to go back to just a regular classroom in September. So we have to have contingency plans um, around you know, possibilities of half and half where students alternate. Because um, I don't think we're going to be, you know, if we have any social distancing regulations, we're not going to be able to stuff kids in our overcrowded classrooms. Uh, we're going to have to come up with better uh, solutions. So, um, you know, what does that look like when we're teaching half the students half the time uh, and, you know, alternating, does that look different? And I think certainly uh, with that, you know, what do you do online? Like, I what do you do online versus what do you do face-to-face? -face? So I think teachers will be hyper aware of the idea that I'm in a classroom with these students. This is a rare and amazing opportunity what can I do differently now? Am I going to do the same things that I did before when you take that time and space for granted? Or am I going to adjust and do things that are deeper and richer? And then when we get to the online portion of our instruction, you know, what do we do? What do we do there? What's best done there? So I think, you know, around access is going to be really important, not just getting the technology in the hands of students who are 
perhaps or, or typically underserved, but also the pedagogy that approaches that. If, once we get to connectivity, it's not good enough to put technology in the hands of students, but we have to think about what we do differently as instructors, what the pedagogies will look like. Yeah, I really like that. And I've heard that from teachers as well, that this has been a time of learning what the priorities are. I have been teaching online with Zoom for the last, I think, three years. And for me, the only way I survive on Zoom as a teacher is to be able to get the nonverbal feedback from students who are either nodding or falling asleep or they're not at their computers or, you know, that tells me how I'm doing and whether I'm reaching them and whether they're engaged. I don't know if that's the best pedagogy or not, but I know sometimes they need to see the presentation and sometimes they need to be able to see each other talk. And I also try to break it up lots. Like I try to plan to break it up lots with breakout sessions or with um, activities that actually take them away from their computer and they meet me back in 10 minutes and then we talk about what they did, you know, either on their computers or on pen and paper beside their computer. I think that so much of the education that's going around online is based on something that was developed in a business model rather than an education model. And um, it's like, it, it feels to me like it's almost like misinformation. It's an interesting thing to see where we're going, what we're going to learn about teaching online. We can't just take what we did and do it online. It's different. I know I've been thinking of my courses next year as in uh, the ed tech courses and thinking of doing some things differently as a result of what's been going on as well. I think it brings back that first point that Kirsten made and Alec, you also mentioned this about sort of the difference between teachers who've been doing this for quite a while already and people who are just dipping their toes in now. And that is also a gap, right? I also wanted to talk a little bit about, Alec, you touched on this really briefly about some of the concerns that are different when you're teaching online and sort of the issue of privacy and safety or the idea that, you know, there's some people who are using multiple tools, multiple apps, different systems and software. And then there's other people who are saying, I just want one thing. I want to know how to do it. Just tell me what I need to do. And so should we look at standardizing things so that it's the same across the board? There aren't parents with five kids with 10 different logins and systems. Or should we look at using different tools for different things and backing all of that up with the professional development that needs to happen? Trying to find a balance between really understanding that, I mean, our educators have always had their autonomy and they choose the practices that best fit their teaching style and they know their students. But then also recognizing that this isn't true online distance instruction, right? This was an emergency response and that our students and our families' frame of mind and ability to take in new information is impacted by that. So we very much wanted to balance both that respect of their autonomy with the importance of some type of standardization so that they would be an easy entrance point for all families. And so we chose to advocate for, um, for our grade six to 12, they're using Microsoft Teams. We are a Microsoft division, and so we've standardized it in that sense. However, how much they choose to do on that and 
the other third party applications that they bring into that format um, is still very much up to them. So we've tried to provide that balance for them, but exactly like you said, we did have some parents at the beginning that were wondering, you know, I have four children and those four children have 16 teachers all together and I can't do all of these logins. So we've been trying to find that good balance. I have four children and uh, they're in two different school districts. And um, so, my, my kindergarten uh, student or child has Seesaw, grade four has Google Classroom, grade seven has OneNote, and grade 10 has Scholantis. And, uh, and then of course, as, as Kirsten mentioned, um, thinking about all of their other teachers, I mean, that's the main portal for those grades. It, it, it was apparent it's, it's hard, it's, it's difficult to keep up with things. And I think that's part, you know, parents who want to be supportive even those who are technologically literate, it's kind of all over the place. And that, but at the same time, I totally understand the teacher autonomy. Like if, if you know, a, a kindergarten teacher is using Seesaw, we shouldn't standardize Seesaw to grade 12. It's not going to be an appropriate tool. Like, and we shouldn't do Moodle all the way down to, you know, from high school and down. So we have to think about teacher autonomy. But what I've seen in, in, uh, uh, in some spaces is just simply a, a portal page. I saw a couple of these emerge from teachers in Alberta. Like it, it's a simple school room that says grade four, like it's one, it's a one-stop shop where all of your spaces for the teachers are put on one place. So for a teacher, for, for a parent coming in or, or for the student, certainly all I do is get people in and then point them to other tools. So they get to see where all of their stuff is. And so the same thing probably should be done at the K-12 level that we help to organize and do some of the organizational work for parents and students so they aren't feeling like they're all over the place. In some cases, like even, you know, one of the things that we did for instructors with Zoom, which I think has some promise, um, like if you, were, if you were registered in room, you know, the... Humanities Building 401, um, and students had been going to that particular building, you basically, to look for your Zoom room, you basically go down a list of, of listed rooms that are scheduled at a certain time, click on that classroom, and you'll get to the Zoom link of that particular time. So anything to simplify the, uh, you know, to simplify the, the process of getting to, you know, through the doors of the classroom is really going to be an important piece. But again, balancing that teacher autonomy is so important because, um, you know, we want to make sure that students or teachers are making the, the right choices and that this one size fits all technology for every subject and for every grade is not going to trump the, um, the ability for us to make the appropriate choices with technology. I agree. And I think those are some really good suggestions for how to sort of keep things as friendly as possible for people coming in. If you had to pick one or two things that you think COVID-19 has taught us that might stick as we move forward. Sure. Um, as I mentioned before, I think the biggest thing is respecting that time together. The time that we have together is, is probably the most important one of all of these. Um, you know, thinking about what it means for a, for a teacher, what it means for a student to be in a space together. What are the possibilities? What are the what is the best 
you know, what is, what is the best use of that time? And I, and I think that anyone who's done flipped classroom probably knows that. They know that certain things are better um, in a face-to-face -face classroom. So that, that's going to be really important. And then I think, you know, the other one is, you know, why haven't we thought about greater equity uh, in when it comes to technology? So we have at the university level, we have international students who didn't have, don't have typically some great access to technology. They've been relying on the university network. And then when you get locked out of the university, then you're having to find things. And of course, the universities scramble to, to uh, ensure that they have connectivity. And of course, the same has been mirrored in K-12 systems as well. But what we, what we need is to give students all access, all the same access to the same devices or you know, similar devices that do the same thing. Um, and uh, get away from the notion that we should have our parents and students, you know, perhaps subsidize, um, you know, school. Let's, let's, let's fund schools appropriately. Let's give them proper uh, technology. And let's not think that the public is just going to fill in the gaps because we shouldn't have to do that. It's not pedagogically appropriate and it certainly doesn't deal with the issue of equity. I was part of a survey project with the school division here recently and there was a comment from one of the participants who said that they had spent their rent and food money to buy a laptop for their son so he could finish high school. And that, that comment hit me hard because we had just gone through the same thing for our kids and had needed to upgrade our internet and that wasn't really a big financial burden. And just it, the privilege of it, just making that sort of upgrade and then reading that comment shortly after hit me really hard. So thank you and for we, your... We had similar uh, feedback on our OER. We did a, a survey on OER use, uh, you know, open educational resources in university, um, you know, because some textbooks are, you know, $200, $500 for textbook costs for a single class. And so um, students were either sharing or, you know, sharing uh, multiple textbooks, which isn't great for them or, you know, to hopefully getting into the resale market, but you know that, you know, publishers don't like you having a re, you know, resale market and e-texts are problematic because you can't even resell your e-text uh, or resell access to it. But that was the one thing in the surveys is a number of students saying they, you know, they didn't, they, they ate less. They, you know, they didn't have entertainment because of the textbooks that they came in. Um, so they weren't able to function as you would normally or as their peers are because of the high cost of textbooks. And so, so OER is um, open educational resources is certainly um, one uh, thing to look at. And just to you know, finish that thought, universities are already touting how much they've saved carbon footprint, um, you know, uh, you know, because they haven't had to, you know, uh, heat these buildings or you know, whatever the electrical pieces and the printing and so on. But that doesn't go away. It's just being offloaded to professors who are sitting at home who are doing all this. It's not like the, the footprint has gone down. Again, we're going to the, this notion that we're expecting school, you know, students to, you know, students and parents to print things at home or, you know, uh, faculty to do that. Um, we're also seeing that, you know, one of the biggest draws for parents, uh, they want packets. Like in many cases, they just want paper packets. We're seeing that from lots of school districts. Um, you know, give me paper, it's gonna be easier for me to deal with some of this stuff. So again, um, the costs are being distributed differently, but they're not necessarily um, disappearing. Like we're not 
we're not all of a sudden finding cost savings. We're just distributing them differently. Kirsten, did you want to chime in about some things that we might have learned from COVID-19 that we could keep as we go forward? I just wanted to speak about how when you have experience trying to determine what works best in a face-to-face -face environment versus what can work in an online space. And I'm hoping that this new experience, trying different technologies will allow teachers to kind of determine what niche technology can fill in their own classroom ecosystem so that hopefully they can continue to use technology in those spaces and then really exemplify those face-to-face -face characteristics and those biotic elements that they need to really have those relationships and connections with their students. And so that would be my hope moving forward. Especially in our area, we do tend to have a high percentage of students that um, cannot be in the classroom all the time for a variety of reasons. And so I'm hoping that our teachers will be more equipped now to assist them moving forward and that they won't suffer because they can't come into the classroom as often as some of their peers. I think that I, I like what uh, both Alec and Kirsten are saying there and, and certainly the issues of equity and access and so on are enormous that come out of that. But something else that I'm just thinking about is the way it's, I think people, the public, if we use that term, have a different appreciation for what teachers and schools do. And I think something that we all know, and that's the importance of relationships in all of this, but I think it's really come to the front when you see um, teachers sitting on sidewalks talking to kids or um, the parades that you've seen with families out there cheering and waving and things like that. It just, it just brings that to me, the human part of it, that, um, you know, sometimes we take a lot of that for granted, I think. So that's one thing I wanted to add to that. My son, who's in grade two, saw a parade for a neighborhood school. It's not his school, but it's close enough that he wanted to ride his bike around and around and around because all the teachers were there with signs, we miss you. And I think even though he didn't know any of those teachers, but he felt so encouraged riding his bike around that we rode around a couple times. All right, I think that's a great spot to sort of wrap up unless anyone has any other thoughts that you'd like to share. Um, I'll add a couple. Sure. Um, I, was, I was just thinking, you know, a couple of things that we, um, we, we have, to, again, you know, to stress that we have decades of uh, online learning literature, distance learning literature that we can tap into, um, that we haven't, that we need to pull out at times. So, uh, if there are people in faculty or on staff that can help with that and translate it into practice, I think that's really important. Like, what are the best practices that we found from this? Uh, and, you know, if you look at even online versus face-to-face -face learning, we know that online can actually work just as well as face-to-face -face learning, but you'll make gains if you're doing blended. So, the, you know, we'll probably be in a blended mode at some point, we're probably going to be in school some of the time. And so like, how do we actually move into a blended mode? Uh, and what do we learn from that? How do we make it more effective? Because uh, on paper, blended tends to be better than both face-to-face -face or online instruction. Um, and so I think, you know, tapping into literature is going to be really important. Uh, and then of course, recognizing um, that this does take work, you know, emphasizing this. This takes more prep, it takes more work. Uh, it takes more to be engaged. You know, ultimately, it's about 
uh, we're, our teachers are going to be overtaxed. They're going to be very um, tired and they, you know, they're trying a lot of new things. And then there's just trying to engage uh, students with students. Uh, it's going to be tough. So we need to recognize that and kind of going by, back to Mike's comment is, you know, hopefully um, the, the shift, you know, sometimes the, um, you know, parent, parents can kind of move one way or the other in terms of the support of public education. I'm hoping certainly that this uh, gets us closer to, again, recognizing that we have to properly fund public education. Um, you know, it, we've kind of got a sense of how important they are to the fabric of our society. All right. Well, thank you all so much for coming and being part of this conversation. And yeah, it's been a real pleasure to have you. Looking forward to being able to interact again, maybe through Twitter, maybe someday in person. Thanks for asking me to be part of this one. And it's good to see you, Kirsten and Alec, again. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Research Connection podcast. You can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode. And for more Research Connection content at www.brandonu.ca slash bu cares. Be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community. Thank you.